0: Please take your seat and grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. What a glorious morning of song. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, everybody. Um, Mark chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just ask you a question to consider here to get us started. When you consider faithfully serving Jesus Christ... Obediently, faithfully pursuing after Christ and serving Him. What do you see on the other side of that? Um, What might you expect to receive? And by the way, I'm talking about here on earth, even. Maybe in the coming months or years, just after serving faithfully unto the Lord, what do you see is coming out of that. And I don't think that's a selfish question to ask. Um, I mean, Scripture talks about how God blesses the faithfulness of his people. Scripture talks about how God does not hold anything good back from his people. Last Sunday we see Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, that Jesus sends the disciples out to proclaim and And there's the assumed understanding in that, that he's going to be seeing them coming back. And for them, when he sends them out with no money, no extra food, no extra clothing, no extra anything, what are they expecting when they come back from faithfully serving? So when you put it all on the table for Christ, what's on the other side of that? Well, let's read our text for today. And uh, let's kind of dive into that question. Let's begin in verse 7. Uh, 7 through 13 was last Sunday. We'll we'll start there. Verse 7. And he, Jesus, called the twelve, and he began to send them out. How many? Two, two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And then our text for today, starting in verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, 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 he's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised and then we go back in history. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out. And she said to her mother, Mom, what should I ask for? And Mom said, the head of John the baptizer. And she came in immediately. Okay, we're kind of, I realize this is deep here, but when we come across immediately as we do the bam, it just reminds us what's going on. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me the head of John the baptizer on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king, went, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on the platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took John's body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had said and done. God, I just pray as we dig into this scripture that we would see more of you. Just what a glorious time of singing this morning and being taken vertical, being reminded of your holiness and your forgiveness and just how great you are in song. God, here here are we in this text. What a crazy text. And yet in it, you are all through it, all around it, all over it. I just pray we would savor the time in your word. Show us more of you, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are, verses 14 through 29. and We've got this really what is a very interesting literary interlude. I mean, when we look over in verse 7 through 13, we see this text from last Sunday where Jesus grabs his guys and he sends them out. And then we have this story uh, between sending them out and when he tells of them coming back. And there's this story in the middle here with uh, John and what's happening here. And what's been taking place is Mark, the human author of this, has been focusing our eyes up to this point on people in the masses. So Jesus' interactions with people in the masses. But what I mentioned last Sunday was that I think Mark is shifting our focus, the reader's focus, to now seeing Jesus interacting with his disciples. It's really now becoming about Jesus discipling his disciples. Hey, if you want to grow as an effective disciple maker, you have to watch the strategy of Christ in this. I mean, it's, it's just marvelous how strategic he is. And that's what we're focusing in on. And last Sunday we had this, Jesus sends out the 12, he sends them out as we talked about, he sends them out as a team, two by two, he, he sends them out with authority, he sends them out on a journey, he sends them out lean, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra clothing, he sends them out, we talked last Sunday, after red apples. And also uh, he sends them out to proclaim that God's people, or that people should repent. By the way, you take that last part out, and all the rest is just someone doing good stuff. But without the last part, all the good stuff really points to nothing. But they're to go out and proclaim that people should repent. And then before their return, Mark includes this story of John the baptizer's uh, incarceration and death. Why? I think it's a valid question to ask, why? And I think there's two main reasons that I want to highlight today. And the first one is this. When we are in this passage of people being sent out, putting it all on the plate for Christ, as, as sent out proclaimers of Jesus Christ, you need to go out and proclaim knowing this. People will hear. Friends, people will Hear. And I say that because so often, you know, we think it's like, come on, man, we're in such a secular world kind of a situation. People really won't hear. They really don't care. No, 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 no. Part of what comes out of this, what's just embedded in this whole text is people will hear. But, but I'm not a very good communicator. I'm not all that great in it and I I don't know how to do some of these things. No, no, but you go out anyway knowing this. People will hear. In fact, I can prove it from the text. In the very beginning of the passage, look at verse 14, because it says, King Herod, what? Heard. He heard. And as we read this, it's the king. Okay, we'll come to that in just a second, because it's really, uh, he's quite a dude. Um, so King Herod heard. And by the way, verse 16, and Herod heard of it. There's just hope in this. And there's hope in this, because here's the deal. We can't make people hear. And that's not our job. But our job is to proclaim. God's job is for people to hear. I can't make anybody hear. You can't make anybody hear. By the way, you or I cannot make anybody repent. You can't. To turn, to acknowledge their sin condition, to acknowledge their sin, and to turn and to make changes and to pursue after. You cannot make anyone do that. Only God can do that. And you cannot make anybody change. You and I cannot do that. And I tell you, I say that because it's like, phew. That makes us so much more relief in life. Here's our job. Go proclaim. God takes care of the hearing part of it. God takes care of the repenting part of it. And God's job is on the changing part of it. We just go and speak. And that's relieving relieving it's not our job to make people change it is our job to proclaim and disciple them and god does the work in them well let's talk about this because it says king herod and and you just read that you've probably heard that name before but it's like who is this dude okay we need to spend some time on this because it's really important so who is king herod all right have you ever heard the song uh, i am my own grandpa No, some, no, but uh, you got to listen to it. Go ahead, Google it on your phone. It's okay. Um, Just don't push play yet. Um, Let's talk about King Herod. Now, King Herod here in the text is actually Herod Antipas. Okay, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas's dad was Herod the Great. Now let's just talk a little bit about Herod the Great because uh you know we come out of family and, and and family is not the excuse for who we are but at the same time family influences who we are. And so just get a little bit of a feel on who Herod the Great is. Here's a couple of things on Herod the Great. He had 10 wives. Um and 15 children. Can you imagine a household now, he was a king, different kind of a thing going on with the whole setting. But can you imagine 10 wives and 15 children and just the chaos of that and how that functioned and the kids in, in the same castle reality that's going on. Oh, by the way, add to that the fact that, uh, King Herod the Great killed one, had one of his wives killed and two of his children killed. Now, does that not impact the other wives? And does that not impact the other kids? In fact, there was a saying in that day that went like this. It's better to be Herod's pig than a son. Because he treated the hogs better than he did his son at times because he killed a couple of them. All right. So dad's not a real warm, let's go sit on his lap, eat, you know, popcorn and watch a movie kind of a guy. Herod the Great, Herod the Great was alive and reigning when Jesus was born. So when you read the accounts in the Gospels of the birth of Christ, and it talks about Herod, and all the way up to when Herod uh, gave the decree of children under two years old, the boys under two years old to be killed, that was Herod the Great. That was dad, all right? that's Herod the great, Antipas' dad. Now let's talk a little bit about Antipas. When Antipas got a little bit older, growing up under all of that, he went after the throne. He's like, I want to be the king. And so he went after the throne and he did that, frankly, uh, at one point in time, by kind of throwing two of his brothers under the bus, uh, Philip and Archelaus. Uh, There's just mess after mess after mess. I won't go through it all. It's just like a reality TV show. Uh, anyway, and, and so it ends up being that Dad, Herod the Great, ends up saying, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Antipas uh, become the the king, the ruler over everything." But then, after a little while, so he's all excited about that, and then after a little while, Dad changes that, and Dad changes it to where the three boy, three of the boys are going to be reigning, and it's Philip, Archelaus, and Antipas. Okay, now a little bit more on these three. Eventually, when they take over after dad, Archelaus has made what's called an ethnarch. An ethnarch is someone who is taking 50% of the kingdom. So Archelaus was given 50% of the kingdom and promised that if he led well, he would become king over 100% of it. He was probably the worst dude of them all, uh, just not a good guy at all. Yeah, that didn't happen. Okay, so he gave him 50%. Then uh, the next one, Philip is given, uh, he's made a tetrarch. He's given 25% of the kingdom to reign. More in the northern section, he's there. He's probably one of the better uh, leaders, governors, kings of the three. And then Antipas is made tetrarch over Galilee and the area of Ju- or Perea, uh, where most of John the baptizer and Jesus' ministry takes place. So let me sum it this way. Outside of the birth of Christ and the decree to kill the two-year-old children, the Herod that is on the plate in the Bible is Herod Antipas, all the way through his death and resurrection. Okay, Herod Antipas reigned from 4 BC to uh, what was it like 34 uh, AD, so it was a 43 reign a year reign, a long period of time. He's the guy that's on the table. Few more pieces of information about Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas wanted to be called king. Now, think about it. You aren't king when you reign over 25% of the kingdom. But he wanted to have the title king in his territory. So he goes to the emperor. He submits to the emperor the request that he could have the title of king just within his area. The emperor says, nope, that isn't going to happen at all. And so in it, he still calls himself king. And so that's why, when we see here Mark writing, he calls him King Herod. It's king. The boy's got a mindset problem. He wants the title, even though he doesn't have the position. This is just telling you a little bit about Antipas. Also about Antipas, he was married to the daughter of an Arabian king. And then while he's married, kind of fitting with dad. Anyway, but this just gets creepy here. Because he goes over with his wife and he stays with Philip, Herod Philip, his brother reigning. They go over and stay with them. While he's with Herod Philip, in all of that, Antipas gets the hots for Philip's wife. Now, let me talk with you a little bit about Philip's wife. Uh, Philip's wife's name is Herodias, the person mentioned in the text here. Uh, she is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. When you got that many wives, the tree goes crazy. Okay, she's the granddaughter. That means, think this through, that means that she is the niece of Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. So Philip, the uncle, marries his niece. Then the niece becomes his wife. She is now Antipas's sister-in-law and niece. So he goes over, gets interested in her, and she marries him. He married his sister-in-law, niece. I am making no jokes about states in the U.S. Okay, (laughs) None of that going on. I will just say this. It's messed up. And on top of that, Philip and uh, Herodias had a child, Siloam. So Siloam was then technically Antipas's niece, even though his mom was a niece, kind of a niece because his sister-in-law and niece. And then she, he marries her, and she becomes his stepdaughter. Okay? Got it? I am my own grandpa. Got to check out the song. All right? I'm just setting the tone. Why am I setting the tone? Because this is a messed-up family with messed-up integrity. That's what's on the plate here. And it's important to understand this in order to where it goes. And I'm just going to add this as a side note here. As you read through husbands and wives and uh, people read through it, you will see Antipas and Herodias fit with, Karen and I use the terminology that uh, men are generally lazy, women are generally critical, and you will see that on steroids in this text and what's happening here. This is a dysfunctional, powerful, wicked people. But know this, even dysfunctional, powerful, wicked, green apple people hear. All of that to come to that. Listen, green apple people need to hear and know this. God uses our proclamations to help them hear. And they have heard. Well, that's about King Herod. Here's the second question out of this. What did King Herod hear? Well, in the English Standard Version, it says this. King Herod heard of it. It. (laughs) Well, like what's it? Well, let's read the text. King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. I think the it here clearly is referring to Jesus. Some of your Bibles say King uh, Herod heard of Jesus. Well, what's going on is what's it? What, what's going? It's the big text and the small context. It's the big context of from Mark chapter one all the way to Mark chapter six. Mark has been helping us see that Jesus' name and fame has been growing and growing and growing on the ground. And now we're in higher up level all the way to the point to where really I would say I'm the governor, or he could say, yes, king, uh, the governor here. He's now hearing all of this. He's been hearing all this. And we'll see here in a little bit that I also think he doesn't just hear by second-hand proclamation, but by direct first-hand proclamation from John himself as well. But know this, when God's people are out proclaiming what God has called us to do and proclaim, people hear. And that even means wicked, dysfunctional people in high places. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God expands his word when we open our mouths. People will hear if we proclaim. Let's read verses 14 through 16. Uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. That is why he's doing these miraculous powers that are at work. But others said he's Elijah, and uh, others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But here's where it's all going. But when King Herod heard of it, heard of what, by the way? The near context is part of it as well. Because within his territory, now you have six teams that are going out of the disciples, spreading it around, and the fame of the name of Jesus Christ is getting even more so, and King Herod heard of it, and when he's hearing all that there is to hear about Jesus Christ, look what's going on in his heart. God's doing a work on this dude. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Do you sense fear? And guilt? In there? John's like, I'm seeing a ghost. I swear, I tell you, this is a ghost. The guy I killed, like, like the good guy that I killed, oh, he's coming back. This is like a creepy, cool movie. And listen, God is working on his heart. The spirit of God is going after this guy. Even though John doesn't know it, even though the disciples don't know it, God is working at people in high places. And right all the way down into their heart. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. But here's one of the questions out of this that I ask. Why would a wicked, hard-hearted, proud, conniving, lazy, wimp of a man, I'm just going to tell you, like Antipas, feel guilt over having killed some desert nomad? I mean, his daddy killed people. People. He's been involved in the killing of people. But there's something about this one guy that just is not leaving the heart of Antipas. And God is just taking this in and working him. He hears that that Jesus is moving. He's like, oh my word, it's John and he's back from the dead and he's coming after me. That's what's really happening here. Why would he do that? Because God is at work in his heart. Well, we've been in the present right here. Verse 17 now shifts. Verse 17 shifts to the past. Why is King Herod all feeling guilty? For the following reasons history. For it was Herod, Antipas, who had sentenced, seized John, and bound him in prison. Okay, we're jumping back in time. Uh, this is not at this time. It's in the past. Herod Antipas went and got John. Why would Herod Antipas go and seize John and put him away? Well, one reason could be is that John is out there in the, in the desert and he's calling people. And we know that when John was alive, the people of Israel were like coming to him in droves. And so if you're the governor, if you're the king wannabe, and some other guy is getting power over the people, that would be one reason to take his legs out from under him, right? Right? I mean, it would be. But there's another reason, and it's called his wife. And uh, look what happens here, what the text says. Uh, for Herod, uh, it was Herod who had see, uh, sent and seized for John, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Oh, by the way, who was Philip's wife, and now he's married to her. Why do we need to know that? Because of verse 18. Because back in the day, when John the baptizer was alive, he was saying to Herod, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. By the way, I don't think this is a statement that worked up the food chain of communication. This wasn't the phone game. I think the way we read this, we get this idea that there was somehow, somewhere, this direct inter. This firsthand direct communication between John and Antipas. And in it, i got to tell you, John is a stud. Because what are you going to do when the king, when the governor comes to you, and he's got all power in that day, and what do you talk about? Hey, them colts, man, 1 o'clock. Or this weather, it's cooling down, winter's coming, right, governor? No, no, here's John. Hey, Antipas, I probably didn't say it that way, but Antipas, while well, you're doing, the whole thing with your wife, repent. <laughs> what a stud. Really. And he says it. So who, who does that make mad? Uh, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him. Wait, 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 wait. The text doesn't tell us that he, John told Herodias. The text tells us that John told Herod Antipas. So here's what's going on. There's this conversation I think we get from the text that he's talking with Antipas. And then Antipas is somewhere, you know, they're in the cabinet or in the kitchen somewhere. And they're talking, about, hey, guess what happened today, honey? Talk to that John guy, you know, the crazy dude? Yeah, really, what did he say? He said, this whole thing, it's wrong. And it's like, if you're in high places, why don't you just go, you know what? Everybody's critical. But not her. She's like, you don't say that to me. Nobody says that kind of stuff to me. You say stuff about me like that and I'll have your head. And that's exactly what she wants. And she holds a grudge against him. And to the point where he wanted to put him to death. Now, listen, we have this statement, it's like, oh, it made me so mad, I just want to take him out. I I, I hope you haven't meant that, or I I don't think we've meant that. Oh, I've never, I thought it. Right? (laughs) Okay. You guys are way more better ahead than I am. But there are just the times where we're like that, but we don't mean that. She did. Who in life have you met that has been on your face and you're like, I want to kill them and I mean it for real. That's what was going on here. But she could not, the text tells us. Verse 20, why not? Because of her husband. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. It, you got the, Here's the governor, here's the king, and he's like, I don't know what it is about this guy, but there's something totally different about his life. Friends, that should be you and me. Well, what is it about you that makes you live differently from everybody else? It's like today so many Christians want to live like, like like pagans, to be frank about it, so we fit in. Are you kidding me? What made John stand out was the fact that he was living differently. There's something about the guy. And the guy's in the top of the career path. And he's like, there's something about this guy that is totally uh, something. And uh, by the way, and because of it, God used Herod to keep John safe, the text says. And when, when Herod heard John, he would be greatly perplexed. It has this idea of being not like, hm, that's really interesting. It has this idea of being very disturbed. Well, why, why would that be? Because John preached repentance. And called people and helped them in a loving way. Help them understand that we're sinners separated from a holy God. And it doesn't matter how many good things you do. You cannot earn favor with God. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to come to Christ. And John is preaching the gospel of repentance, essentially. And in it, Herod is hear, heard this, and it works him over, and he's disturbed. And yet in it, he heard him gladly. Hey, I'm going to tell you, green apples may be green apples, but they're hearing and they're thinking. And many just want to keep talking and keep talking. Well, let's keep on going. Verse 21, but an opportunity came. Oh, by the way, help me on this. Opportunity for who? Herodias. This is not Antipas's opportunity. This is uh, the bitter wife opportunity. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. By the way, I wonder who suggested the whole Herod have a birthday this year. Maybe it was normal. Maybe Herodias kind of encouraged that on because it was an opportunity. So Herodon's birthday, you have a banquet for his nobles, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. Got the picture? Here's this birthday party, wherever the scene is, in the kingly governor room, and all these uh, older men, um, leaders around, and it's a party, and most likely, they're probably all wasted. Okay? That's what's likely going on in the setting of it. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... And the text goes on, she pleased Herod and his guests. Okay. Um, this is his stepdaughter coming into dance, which, you know, was part of it. Where There's some cool dance that's done nowadays that I could see a dad really supporting that. And just, uh, hey, let me, you know, it's like my daughter plays her violin or plays the keyboard or whatever like that. So she's going to dance. But uh, I think in the context of it, the way we see this go, uh, let me just put it this way. I don't think this is like off the edge, really, really bad. But this was not a waltz, okay? Uh, Here's a bunch of drunk old men. And by the way, Salome, his stepdaughter at the time, uh, is a teenager. So the teenager comes in and does a dance, probably a bit on the edge of things. And uh, the guests are pleased. And then we go on. The king said to the girl, uh, his stepdaughter, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Now understand, that was a common thing to do in the day. When the king, when Herod the Great would have people come, like America's Got Talent, and they would come and they were really, really good, rather than standing up and not hitting the buzzer, they would give them very expensive gifts as a result. Why would they do that? Well, they so appreciate the entertainment. Okay, maybe so, but here's the reality. Because they wanted to show off to all the other boys in the room that's what was going on they just want to show their wealth and how awesome they are and how powerful they are and that's what it went and by the way that's why Herodias saw this as an opportunity she knew how this whole thing worked and the fact in all of this by the way that she would send her stepdaughter into this or her own daughter teenage daughter into this with a bunch of drunk old men even if it was a waltz woman what are you thinking? right? come on and yet, that it just gives you the idea of how much of a grudge she has to take John out. And so she sends the daughter in and she dances. And then uh, uh, Herod says, ask whatever you wish, so I'll give you half to my kingdom. Uh, verse 24, and she went out and said to the mother, uh, oh, by the way, uh, 23, she vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. By the way, I don't think that was an actual literal statement. I think that was a typical man, locker room, stupid thing. I'll give you all the way up to my, half of my kingdom. That's how awesome I am. That's really one of those, dude, get a new title. And so in it, that's what's happening. So she, what uh, does Salome do? Verse 24, she went out, said to her mom, Mom, what should I ask for? I mean, come on, if you're a teen (laughs) and daddy-o says anything up to half my kingdom, I'm like, I want the cash, Or give me like the Ferrari, right? But but she runs to mom, is just telling you something about this relationship here. She runs to mom and mom says, it's not like, hmm, give me three options here. Or let me think about this. Or let me spend some time on this. We get no idea that there's delay to here. Instead, we get the idea that she comes back and mom's like, all on plan. I want John's head. And so then the daughter... She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the baptizer on a platter. Girl, at what point in time do you go, Mom, I love you, but that's a bit warped, right? Do do you just see the depth of depravity going on in this family? And by the way, I, I don't know this. But when Salome comes back and asks for the head of John, she asks for it on a platter. Was that her idea? It's like, hey, if we're going to do this, let's party it up. It's in a party, platters are everywhere. And she comes in, "Hey daddy, I want her I want John's head on a platter." This is just sick. Verse 26. And Herod Antipas was exceedingly sorry. Dude, you just got caught in your own pride. Antipas didn't want to do this. And yet, with a big mouth and a whole lot of pride, and he got caught. But because of his oaths, back in that day, they actually kept their word. But because of his oaths and his guests, Show off. He did not want to break his word to her. So immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded John. By the way, friends, had I preached this sermon, this text, two months ago, that would have had a different meaning than it has today. Literally. Two months ago, all the way back to the history of this country, The whole concept of someone being beheaded was far and distant and a long ways away and that's only what crazy people do. And guess what? It's coming home. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the teen and the teen gave it to her mother now, interesting is this. It ends right there. It ends. Herodias won. She won. Well, when his disciples heard of it, they came, they took John's body, they laid it in a tomb. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had seen and done. Hey, I think this is just one more thing. I'm going to hit this one more time. People will hear. I mean, people like Antipas, some who will respectfully hear and fear and remain perplexed, but they will hear, you guys. People will hear. And then even people like Herodias... Who are, who are just vengeful and mean and may want to take you out. Know this. Even they are hearing. But do you also understand in all of this where this is leading to? Not only what will they hear, but I think the second reason that Mark is putting it right in this context is because that when we are the kind of people who put it all on the plate as sent out ones proclaiming Jesus Christ, know this, that one possible result of doing that is heads will roll. And by the way, I'm not talking about other people's heads, I'm talking about our heads. And here in the very first telling of Jesus sending out the disciples, what an amazing moment in the time of redemptive human redemptive history through the Old Testament coming and then now to this point in time. And here Jesus is sending out the disciples to proclaim. And Mark puts in this text, this story, reminding us not only what's happening in the day, but explaining what ended up happening to these guys, to John. And then they come back home. Listen, friends, I also bring into this fact the fact that Mark himself, when he went on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul, bailed. Why did he bail? We don't know exactly why he bailed, but I think it's very likely he bailed because it got hard. And he came home. He left the first missionary journey. I mean, what a cool time in history to be. And he left the first missionary journey to go home. Why? Because it got hard. And I wonder if Mark, when he is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's telling the story about the disciples going out, and he's even reflecting back on his life for the first time when he went out, and he bailed because it was hard. And he's reflecting back to John and how John's head was on a platter. Friends, following Jesus Christ costs. And we live in a country where for decades now, the gospel has been preached as something of come to Jesus and you'll have all your dreams come true. Jesus is the Willy Wonka of our world. And it's time to wake up. And it's time to understand that a guy like John who faithfully served the Lord with his life ended up here on earth with his head rolling in the dirt. And not only with his head off but his head cut off by wicked, wimpy, arrogant, vengeful people. decapitated, put on a party platter for everyone to laugh over and to glory in their victory. And I can guarantee you, if John was here this morning, he would say it was worth every moment. And he'd do it again. I do not think John would stand here and go, I got gypped. I served the Lord for years and I ended up with a raw deal. I served the Lord and look what I get. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. By the way, there are no good people, Romans chapter 3, but we'll leave that aside. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people who serve the Lord for a period of time, who serve the Lord and come out of that, who serve the Lord for years and years and years of their life. Bad things shouldn't happen to those kind of people. Excuse me. When you look through the lens of serving Christ... What do you see on the other side of that? Are you serving him, following him? Because it's comfortable? Or are you serving and following him because of what we sang this morning and who he is? And it's all on the table. Small me, big God. Maybe the Lord will have great blessing for you. Maybe he will pour it out, bring you great comfort, expand your ministry impact, even bring you great wealth like he did to Job, Joseph, and David. Maybe God has that. But do know this. Maybe the Lord also has it to where like John, We finish out faithfully serving the Lord, mocked, ridiculed, maybe even beheaded. If that's the case, are you in on this? Because if not, I just say this. Remember Mark chapter 4 and the second soil. And the second soil was the person who received Christ. But but then trial and persecution because of the word. And the word is Jesus Christ. But trial and persecution because of the word. And they're like, no, I'm out. I'm not asking for you, or I don't think Mark is asking for us necessarily to die radically. I actually think the call is that we live radically. All on the table. None of us are there, but pursuing after that. All on the table. Just even as you look towards this week, you guys. Is it all on the table, or is it going to be half of me for half of him? Jesus didn't give half of him. Jesus gave all of him, and he calls for all of you and me. And if God's plan is prison and your head, would you still go there? There's been a saying over the last three decades that goes like this, you won't hear me espousing it, and it says, find where God is working and join him there. I think I understand what they're trying to say, but I think it's a really bad statement. Because in our culture, where we see things working is where there's successful stuff happening, awesome stuff happening, really cool, wonderful stuff happening. But what if it was the kind of thing that it meant where God wanted you to be was sold as a slave in prison like Joseph? Would you go there? Would you join God there? Or what if it's the kind of thing to where it's like, I faithfully pro- proclaim and yet there's no response like some of the Old Testament prophets. And it just leads to tears and heartache for you. Would you still go there with him? Well, what if God has it to where uh, in it all you, you, you have to run and hide for years hiding in a cave to spare your life from someone coming after you like David. And David had already been told he was going to be king. Or what if it was the kind of thing to where God had it, where God had it with you was He was going to have you be a faithful testimony unto the Lord and that included having your entire business empire and your children killed by a storm like Job? Would you join Him there? Or are we going to join our brothers and sisters? In places in the world that are given the option, deny your Savior or cut your head off. What would you and I say? Friends, I don't think we have any idea what's really going on sometimes within our own hearts. And I do not want to have this be a, oh, he's just trying to scare the hell out of me Sunday. I want this to be because I think what Mark has done is he's placed this text in the fact that people who really are sold out for Christ, put it all on the plate, are going out and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ out there. Know this, that your head on the plate could be one of the results of it. Are you still in? That's what's going on. And it is one of these kind of Sundays that should just cause us to step back and rethink and reevaluate, why am I in this? So why are you in this? Here's what I'm going to ask. I just want to have us take maybe here five minutes at the most and just bow our heads. It just take some alone time. I want to read for you and just listen. Would you just kind of bow your heads? Just listen. This is you and the Lord time. Now let me just add it. Listen to Luke chapter 9. Jesus is saying here. Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. And he asked them, hey hey guys, disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Others say, one of the prophets of old. How interesting is that? That's so much exactly the same thing from Mark chapter 6. But verse 20, then Jesus said to them, no, 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 here's the issue. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus takes that statement. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, I believe that he is the Christ. And Jesus takes that statement. And then in verse 22, he says this. Guys, listen. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and then raised. And he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him, let her deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Friends, it is so clear that following Jesus Christ has never been and is still not a comfort ride. It is not a ride through the pumpkin patch. It's all in, all on the table. No one in this room is perfectly doing that. But is that your objective? Because if it's just kind of, I want part of Jesus, I just want the comfy part of Jesus. Here's the reality, Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, I will say to you, I never knew you. Jesus is not into wimpy Christianity. That's the truth. Maybe you've been making Jesus all about you. And it's time for you to make you all about Him. Are you willing to live your life for Christ? Are you willing to live your life? Christ.